Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to 1 John chapter, well, we're going to read 1 John 2, 29, the last verse of chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 3. So 1 John 2, 29 to 3, verse 3. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to, to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. John writes, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall will sorry, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The sentence of reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's uh, pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that uh, you give us your whole counsel of God, especially the gospel of your son. Uh, from beginning to end, we, we thank you for everything you have given us in this passage here this morning. And we ask that you would... Uh, Work in us by your spirit again. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Give us grace to have the mindset that even as your son said, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from from your mouth, the mouth of our God. Uh, Feed us even on your word today and make us grow in grace. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, as a a pastor, as a preacher, um, there are... um, there are a number of passages that are kind of uh, so well known, uh, so much uh, precious truth in them that it can be kind of intimidating to preach on them. Uh, and it's been said uh, about Martin Luther many, many, many years ago that his knees would knock together when he would preach the word because he was he understood what he was doing. He understood he was representing God in some way and, and preaching the, the holy word of God. And so, you know, we would all do well. Everybody who preaches would do well to maybe have our knees knock a little bit more. Um, but there are passages that are so well known, uh, you know, Psalm, Psalm 23, uh, Romans chapter 8, the whole chapter, so many places that it's kind of intimidating to think of preaching on them because there's so much there and it's hard, you know, nearly impossible to do them justice. And uh, and this this is one of those passages, at least to me it is, uh, where the subject matter is so kind of up there and out there and so lofty and, and wonderful that it's it's kind of intimidating. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a uh, great preacher uh, in his day, said of 1 John 3, 1 through 3, he says these three verses, quote, are perhaps the three most moving verses in the entire epistle. And of verse 2, he writes this. He says, I suppose we must agree that nothing more sublime than this has ever been written and any man who has to preach upon such a text or upon such a word uh, must be unusually conscious of his own smallness and inadequacy and unworthiness. And I think I, I, all I can say to that is amen. Um, so what is it about what we just read uh, in First John, uh, the end of chapter 2, but especially verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 3? Was it, what is it about these verses that makes them so moving and sublime? What is it that makes them so kind of intimidating to try to, to study and preach on? And I'll just say it's the subject matter, isn't it? 
It's the love of God for sinners. Something we, we can talk about sometimes rather easily, uh, but if we give any thought to what we're talking about, it won't be so easy uh, to comprehend. And here in this text, uh, John uh, gives us just a little glimpse of the love of God for sinners that Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19. Remember, he told the Ephesian Christians how he prayed for them. And this is what he says about the love of God. He talks about the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God that he says surpasses knowledge. You, you just, I mean, God in general, you can't get your mind and, and arms wrapped around everything about God. But the love of God for sinners is one of those subjects that, you know, we can talk about it, but it's, it's so far and above our, our pay grade, so to speak, our comprehension, our ability to comprehend, uh, that it's just overwhelming. And so according to that, what outworking of the love of God? You know, the Bible says a lot about the love of God, John 3.16, for God what? So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So what is it in First John 3 about the love of God in particular, uh, his love for sinners? What does John single out as an outworking of that love uh, for sinners that, that he wants us to understand better? Uh, what is it about the love of God here that John is talking about that is so worthy of our utmost attention, our utmost contemplation and adoration uh, the love of God, the thing he pinpoints about it to us in our text is our adoption in Christ as children of God and the corresponding grace of God in the new birth and our being born again by the Holy Spirit. That's what John fixates on and fixes our attention on in our, in our text. And so if, if you're a believer in Christ, and I trust that all of you here in this room and even at home are, when was the last time you thought about the greatness of the love of God toward you, not just towards people in general and towards the believers, but the greatness of the love of God towards you in Christ and particularly of that love in adopting you as his child into his family. Uh, it's, it's a theme that is found, uh, to say it's found repeatedly in Scripture, I don't even know how to do that justice, uh, especially in the New Testament. You know, I, as I was you know, working on this passage, translating it, reading commentaries on it, thinking about it, um, I have to tell you, the more I thought about it, it was kind of overwhelming because all these other passages came kind of flooding into my mind. What about this? What about that? What about this cross-reference and that one? I, I could have, maybe you would have preferred this, I could have sat at my desk and instead of writing a sermon, I could have just copied and pasted passage after passage after passage where in the Old and New Testaments, the apostles and prophets mentioned our status as children of God, the fact that God is our heavenly father in Christ, all these things, it's everywhere. You know, I almost want to go through all the books of the Bible and, and just show, look, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. I won't do that. Uh, that would be a long, uh, wouldn't be a sermon, I guess, but it would be very long. But, but just saying, you could easily do that. It's all through the Bible and especially all through the New Testament. It's amazing how many times the apostles, Peter, James, John, uh, Paul, when they want us, a lot of times, it's when they want to make an ethical exhortation. They want, to, they want to charge us to live holy lives or follow God's commandments. That the thing they, they latch on to is, you're a child of God, now act like it. You have been adopted by the Lord, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ as a child of God. So here's how a child of God should live. Uh, it's amazing how many times uh, they, they do that. Um, we are told of this 
general topic in many ways repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount. If you know what that is, it's Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's uh, the most famous sermon of Christ recorded in Scripture. And if you read through it, you will find references over and over and over again referring to God as our Heavenly Father. Or, you know, your Heavenly Father knows what you need. All these kinds of, of things we're told in uh, Matthew 5.16 to let our light uh, shine before others that, so that they may see our good works and give glory to whom? To your Father who is in heaven. Uh, Matthew 5.16, we are also taught to love our enemies, something that does not come natural to any person. Love our enemies, why? So that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5.44-45. We're also told in Matthew 5, verse 48, you therefore, you therefore must be perfect as what? He doesn't just say as God is perfect, which is true. He says you must therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, uh, 9 to 13. And what's the first thing we're taught? How to address God. Our Father, I always think of the King James, you know, our Father who art in heaven, your heavenly Father. When you pray, you're not just praying to God, although you are. You're praying to God who is in Christ, your heavenly Father, which should change how we pray. You, you, you expect your Father to be, to be kind to you, uh, especially God himself. We are commanded not to be anxious. Why? Jesus says, because your, your, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask. In other words, he's very conscious of what you need because he's your father. Um, the Apostle Paul bases his exhortation to believers uh, to live holy lives on the love of God lavished on us in our adoption in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Therefore, be imitators of God, here it is, as beloved children. And notice the way he puts it. It, it should be redundant, but it, it often isn't. You can be someone's child and not feel loved. And he's saying, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He brings it up repeatedly. God's love for sinners like you and me, his grace toward us in adopting us as his children, should motivate us to live lives of holiness and seek more and more to cultivate the family resemblance uh, of our God and Father in Christ. That's, that's really what John is getting at in this passage, isn't it? He, talks, he really has the takeaway in our passage uh, isn't just some contemplation. It's that we might live a life of holiness and, and more and more purify ourselves is the phrase he uses at the end of the passage. Uh, if you've known me for any length of time, you've probably heard me quote Knowing God by J.I. Packer a hundred times. Um, my favorite book, my favorite Christian book, I believe, is that one. It's really had an, uh, an effect on me. Uh, but in that book, he includes a chapter on this topic called Sons of God. And there he says the richest answer that he knew to the question of what is a Christian is this. That a Christian, quote, is one who has God as father. Like the, the most meaningful definition of a Christian, you could give better theological definitions of that for sure. But the one that, that was the most meaningful to him, the richest, deepest answer is one who has God, God as our father. He also says, quote, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. 
So if we don't have a good grasp of, of what it means to be adopted as God's child, according to Packer, and I'm not going to say he's wrong, uh, it can't be better than your grasp of, of adoption. You don't really understand Christianity very well if you don't understand that. In fact, my favorite quote in the whole book is also in that chapter, and many of you may, may have heard me read it before. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. That's a mouthful. Like he's saying, if the thought that God is your heavenly father and you are adopted into his family, if that's not the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning, and, and we, I think we'd all confess most of us don't think about that even after our first cup of coffee. Uh, there's something wrong. You know, it, that should be the thing that, that gets you through trials, that gets you uh, to joyfully obey him, even when you're not sure why God wants you to do whatever you know, he's commanding us to do, all these things. So whether or not you think uh, that you understand Christianity very well at all, right at the moment, I think we can all agree that we would all, every single one of us, do uh, very well to think about these things more clearly and so with that in mind, Lord willing, I hope to spend at least a couple Sundays on this text. There's a lot here, and i I got to say it's hard to do a text like this. Even though it's kind of short, it's hard to do it justice in one sermon. Um, and so, Lord willing, at least a couple sermons on this uh, passage. We'll see what God's will is in that regard. But So the first thing I want to look at is the love of God, as, as John speaks about in our passage. Verse 29 of chapter 2 uh, kind of marks a transition uh, in the things that John has been talking about in the previous passage in chapter 2, uh, he's been talking about the necessity of abiding in Christ and abiding in the truth of Christ. Uh, in fact, verses 18 to 28 is kind of all about that. Uh, well, now he's transitioning in verse 29 to the great subject of our adoption in Christ and the new birth. And there in verse 29, John says this, If you know that he, and that's God or Christ, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So in other words, what he's saying is there's a family, you know, when, when you know people sometimes, like when people have, have, have little kids, you, you do this thing where you're like, oh, I think you look like the dad, or I think you look like the mom, or oh, I, I could tell you were so-and-so's kid, sometimes not just by how they look, but they'll say, oh, you, you know, that apple didn't fall far off the tree. They act just like, you act just like your dad. Or you act just like your mom. I could totally see it, uh, not just in how you look, but how you live. It's a, it's a thing of family resemblance, is what John is getting at here in this text. Um, so, you know, he says, if you know he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does or practices righteousness has been born of him. And so... Abiding in Christ, that topic that he spent so much time on in chapter 2, and he mentioned a lot about abiding in the truth of Christ there and not being led astray by false teaching about Christ. Uh, it also, abiding in Christ, also entails following Christ and obeying his commandments. And so John is kind of transitioning to that uh, thought, and he tells us that everybody who practices righteousness, it's their way of life, not perfection, not sinless perfection, uh, has been born of God. It's a matter of family likeness. He's, notice he's speaking of believers here. And don't, don't get this the wrong way. He's not talking about everybody who is kind of a decent, outwardly decent person. 
He's not saying, he's not talking about people who, regardless of profession of faith in Christ, exhibit some kind of outward respectability or, uh, or what we might call civic virtue or civic righteousness. Uh, unbelievers who seem to be outwardly decent people are not born of God. He's not saying everybody who's a nice person is born of God. He's not saying everybody that lives an outwardly respectable life, well, they must be born of God, even if they're not believers. He's not saying any such thing. He's saying of people who profess faith, how can you tell uh, that we are actually believers, that we are actually born of God? It, it's not a hard uh, thing to say. It's those who practice righteousness. If, you know, John has said this in the earlier chapters of the book as well. He just didn't focus on the new birth. He said, you know, if we say we have fellowship with God, but we're still in rebellion against him and don't obey his commandments, we are liars and the truth is not in us, that kind of a, that kind of a thing. So John is also, he's also not saying that practicing righteousness is the root or the cause of our being born again, as if somehow we could earn our salvation. He's not putting the cart before the horse. What he's saying here is that walking in righteousness according to the commandments of God is the evidence or the proof of someone being born again, of someone being born of God. It's, it's the fruit, not the root, so to speak. The root is God's love in Christ and adopting us and making us alive again in the Lord. And the fruit of that is walking in righteousness or practicing it. So before we start to delve into the grace of God in our adoption and the new birth, uh, John starts off in verse 1 by pointing us to just that. He points us to the foundation or the fountain or source of our adoption in Christ. What is, why does God adopt us in Christ? What is the, the reason for it or the, the source of that? It's the love of God in Christ. Look again at verse 1. He says, see or behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I like the way the King James Version uh, renders this in verse 1. And uh, There used to be an old Maranatha song, I think, by this that we used to sing, so the, the wording is permanently embedded in my brain. But it's, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold. And I think that's a better way of putting it because it, it you know, to say see or look at, just look at this. We say that about all kinds of things, but we don't use the word behold for small things. You know, we look at, at, at grand things, things that are impressive, and we say, Mike, we don't probably even say behold for that, but um, I think behold is a better way of, of putting it. The thought of, of the love of God the way John writes it here is one that should really provoke in us a sense of wonder and awe. You know, we've had vacations in the last couple of years. We got to go see the Grand Canyon. We got to go see Zion National Park a number of times. And those are places that when you go, you're like, whoa. You know, like you, you, you can't even comprehend. It's so big. Um, you know, I, I said when we were there, you know, everybody uses their phone for pictures and videos. And I'm taking these pictures of the Grand Canyon. I'm like, this doesn't even do anything. Like, you, you don't get any sense of how big this is by this little picture I could blow it up a thousand times and it still isn't going to do it justice. The same goes for all kinds of things in God's creation. And that's true of the love of God towards, towards sinners. It should fill us with a sense of awe. And you get the sense from the way John writes it. You know, John has known the grace of God. He's an old man at this point. Um, he's, as far as we know from church tradition, he was the last living apostle, uh, may have lived into his 90s and whatnot. 
And even after all those years, John is like, behold, like, can you believe this? The love, the love of God. Uh, the Greek word that is, trans, that is translated what kind or what manner uh, in the King James, uh, it's, it's a difficult verse to translate uh, and get the real sense of it entirely. But it, it conveys the idea of something being utterly foreign. The, the, the phrase literally, literally means something like, of what country is this of? So it's, it's got this idea of something being utterly foreign to us. We can't understand it. It's, it's beyond our understanding. Um, a phrase I use that might be, give the sense of it. Sometimes we say things like, what in the world? Like, that's what this is kind of saying. Like, what in the world kind of love is this that God would do such a thing? That he would call us the children, he would give us the right to be called the children of God. Now notice this, this great love of God for sinners like us is also given to us as a gift. Behold what manner of love the Father has what? Given. Given unto us. It's not something that we were worthy of. It's not something that we in any way could possibly earn. There was nothing within any of us that, that would give God a reason to go, oh, I, well, I have to love that. You know, we set, typically, most of us, maybe all of us, we set our love on things because of things in the, that are inherent in them. You know, when, when you're, when you're uh, you know, picking a pet, you know, a dog or a cat or whatever it may be, like, you see this one, oh, that's the one. You know, and you just, your heart melts or whatever. Or your children, you know, they are, they are born of you. You can't help but love them, all these things. We, we love because of something in, in another thing or person that we love. But that's not what God does, is it? He gives it to us as a gift. We, we are unlovely and unlovable, and yet God sets his love upon us uh, in many ways and, and lavishes his grace upon us. His love is given to us as a gift, as his adoption. Um, we don't even begin to deserve it. We don't even begin to be worthy of it. And that's really half the point, isn't it? You could say that's the whole point of what John is saying. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 11, it says uh, that the greatness of God's love for his people is, quote, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. What, what's what's the, the psalmist saying? He's saying God's love is literally you know, unfathomable to us. We can't get our minds wrapped around it. We can't sound the depths of it. So he describes it in terms that you know, it, words kind of fail him and us to think about it. I mentioned Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, the, the believers in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 3, and I'll read a, a chunk of it here to you. Ephesians three fourteen to 19, talking about the love of God. He says, for this reason I bend or bow my knees before the Father. Notice who he talks about again. It's just there everywhere. Uh, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That sounds like a sermon right there. Uh, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in, our, in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And here it is. To know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Like, you know, we pray for each other all the time. We pray during the service. Pray, hopefully, I pray, we, we all pray during the week for each other. Um, and Paul's like, he prayed for them all kinds of things. But what's he praying for? He's praying that, that God may strengthen them by his Holy Spirit and give them the strength, because we don't have it on our own, 
to just kind of start to comprehend something of the love of God towards us in Christ. You know, it's easy to read these things on the page and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, on your own, you'll never get it. And he's like, I'm praying that God strengthens you all, that you may understand the love of Christ with surpasses, surpasses understanding. You can't, on your own, you don't, it, it's not in your ability to, to comprehend. Um, and it's interesting if you look at the verses after that. Remember that passage where Paul says something about that God is able to do far above and beyond what we ask or imagine? It's right after this. The thing that's above our ability to ask or imagine uh, is that we might know the love of God. We might think of all kinds of bigger things you know, than that, or what we think are bigger things than that, outward things, but it's not what Paul was saying. So God's love for us in Jesus Christ surpasses knowledge. It's too loftier for us. We can only begin to comprehend it in some small measure if God strengthens us by his spirit and enables us to do just that. Not only do we not comprehend the love of God on our own, but we ourselves certainly do not reflect that love on our own. God loves in a way that we would never love on our, on our own apart from him. Romans 5, 6 through 8, uh, Paul says, For while we were still weak, that's, an, that's a compliment, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly or the wicked. And then he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But what does he say in Romans 5, 8? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like, we don't lay our lives down for hardly anybody, even the best person, as it is, Paul's saying. You could almost imagine yourself, you probably wouldn't do it, but you know, you kind of you know, daydream, oh, if I was in there, I would do this and that. For this good person, I would save so-and-so. And he's like, you, you imagine like you might do that. You probably wouldn't. But God loves us so much, he sent his son to die for us when we were sinners. And there's a word we throw around too much, and we act like it's, we, we think of it in very small terms. In Paul, he's not thinking of it in small terms at all. When he says sinners, he means people who hated God, who were in rebellion against God and his commandments and his ways and wanted nothing to do with Christ. Those are the kind of people that God loved and sent his son to die for. Uh, likewise, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, here it is, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. God loved us and saved us even when we were dead in our sins. So we should never cease to be amazed that God, who is infinitely holy and just, who is infinite in majesty and glory, should set his love upon someone like us. If we're believers in Christ, we should be stunned. We should be still shaking our heads like, nah, you know, why would God, why on earth would God do that? Well, because he's, it's something in him, not something in us. Well, that brings us to the second point. Uh, and that is children of God. So the love of God and, and what does God do because of that love? He makes us his children. Uh, John told us to behold the wonder of the love of God for sinners in Christ. And then he points our attention to that one particular saving grace that God lavishes upon us because of that love. And what is it in verse 1? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. What? That we should be called children of God. There's no greater title than that for a human being. We think of greater titles. You know, we think of our jobs or whatever the case may be. 
uh, oh, so-and-so does this, oh, so-and-so is a pastor, or he's this, or he's a president, or he's whatever, that we could be called the children of God by God, that's, that's love. That's, that's the, the outworking of God's love. Here the Apostle John is speaking of the grace of God and our adoption as his children in Christ. Uh, if, if God's love for sinners amazes us by itself, the fact that he adopts us as his children in Christ should just leave us dumbstruck. Like, to say God loves sinners is, is enough to make you be amazed. But to say that God loves sinners enough to adopt us into his family in Christ, like, we don't have any words for it. It's hard, it's hard to even put that kind of thing into words. What is adoption? What does it mean that God adopts us in Christ? The Shorter Catechism, question 34, puts it this way. What is adoption? What is the grace of God in adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And sometimes the, well not sometimes, very often if not always, the, the catechism is very particular uh, in, in its wording, even down to small words. And so when you, if you were to look at these up on your own, which I would encourage you to do, uh, questions 33 through 35 uh, one is what is justification, 35, 34 is what is adoption, and 35 is what is sanctification. These are all uh, acts of, you know, works, acts and works of God's grace to us in the gospel. We just sang a hymn a little while ago in the service, How Vast the Benefits Divine Which We in Christ Possess. Well, these are some of the benefits which we in Christ possess. And there's one little word that is in this answer that I just read to you, that is there for a reason, and it's, they, they chose this word particularly uh, and not another word for, for good reason. Justification, it says, is an act of God's free grace whereby he forgives us all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. But it's the word act. It, justification is an act of God. It's not an ongoing work. It's not a process. It's one and done. And once it's done, it's done. So once you're justified, you will never be more justified than you are the minute you believed. The moment you believed on Christ and were united to him by faith, you were as just, as forgiven, and as accepted as righteous in God's sight as you will ever be. You will not be an, an iota more justified in heaven than you are if you're a believer right now. That may sound mind-boggling. But that's why they say it's an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is an ongoing process. We all know if you're a believer, God is still doing something. And so question 35 says, what is sanctification? And that is, sanctification is a work, not an act, a work of God's free grace. It sounds like a small difference, but the implication is there for a reason. It's an ongoing work. It's something that God began when you believed, and is ongoing until the day Christ comes or calls. Well, adoption is what? Is it, a, is it an act or a work, according to the Shorter Catechism? It's an act. In other words, it's a one-time, one-and-done. Once you're in God's family, you're in God's family. There's no, well, I adopted you this week. Nah, today I don't like you as much. You know, you messed up. You sinned. You're no longer my kid. You know, I, I dis God doesn't disown his children. That's the point. You're, you are no, no more a child of God by title now, uh, than you ever will be. You're as much a child of God now as you ever will be, even in heaven. You'll have more of a, a manifestation of it. You'll have a more of a full enjoyment of it. 
But your status as a child of God, once God has adopted you in Christ and the gospel, never changes. And so as if, as if justifying sinners uh, were not amazing enough, God goes so far and above and beyond that in the grace of adoption. It's, it's hard to put that into words. Justification, if, if the only benefit God gave us in the gospel were justification, that would still be mind-blowing. That would still be more than we could ever hope to deserve or imagine. Uh, but God doesn't just do that. He not only accepts us as righteous. In other words, hey, guess what? You are no longer have hell as your destination. You're, you're going to live in heaven with me forever. God would say, uh, that, that would be enough. I would sign up for that a thousand times out of a thousand and be more than happy. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. You know, uh, where do I sign? Well, God doesn't just do that. He goes beyond that. He's like, you'll not just live in heaven with me forever. You'll be adopted into my family. You'll be a son of God in, in Jesus Christ. In, in Jesus Christ, through the gospel, God takes sinners who are dead in sins, Ephesians 2.1, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3, who have rebelled against him to the point that we were his enemies, Romans 5.10, and who were worthy of nothing but judgment, condemnation, and a Christless eternity apart from God in hell. And what does he do? He, he, he unites us to Christ by his spirit, making us spiritually alive from the dead and working faith in us. He reconciles us to himself and frees us from condemnation and death. And then as if that weren't, weren't enough, he adopts us into his family as his beloved children in his son, Jesus Christ. I, I, I got nothing, you know. Um, it's it's mind-boggling that God should justify us in his son. Reconciling us to himself should boggle our minds, but that he should go so far as to adopt us as his children and give himself to us as our eternal inheritance. Um, words should just fail us at that point. Um, I'll go on. I'll finish the sermon. You're saying, I wish words would fail you sometimes. Earlier in the sermon. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, it, it must be said here, I think, because many people don't get this right. Um, it must be said that no one, no one is a, is a child of God naturally. The only, the only child of God, so to speak, that was one naturally is the Son of God himself. Right? We are not all God's children, as people like to say. Oh, we're all God's children. We are not all God's children by virtue of being born and of God creating us. God is our maker. He is our creator. He is not everyone's father. Uh, you're not a child of God by being born. You're only a child of God by being born again. God is not everyone's father. That's really half the point of what John is saying in our text, isn't it? If everyone were, were God's child... I don't think John could say, behold, what manner of love the Father has given us. He'd be saying, well, everybody is. It's just the way we are. We're just good on our own somehow. And God has uh, given us himself as our, as our Father. Um, many speak of the so-called universal fatherhood of God, uh, but that is a lie. You will not find that taught in the scriptures. And such a notion is nothing less than a denial of the gospel. People that, they mean well, I guess, when they, oh, God's everybody's father, or we're all God's children. No, we're not. On our own, none of us are. None of us are God's children on our own. It takes the grace of God and the gospel. So we, we look briefly at the love of God, children of God, and last but not least, uh, John speaks of the corresponding grace of God and being born of God, of being born of God. So not just our adoption as his children by the act of his grace, but also his grace 
in our being born again by the Spirit of God. We as believers are not just God's children in a forensic sense by a declarative act, which is adoption. We are also his children in a very real way by the work of God within us by making us born again to new life from the dead. In fact, if you recall, last Sunday's sermon text that Jonathan preached, uh, even James mentioned it almost in passing, didn't he? James 1.18 says, Of his own will, God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And the King James, the King James Version puts it this way. Of his own will, here's a word we don't use anymore, but of his will he begat us. What's he saying? What, what is John actually saying there? He's saying that, uh, that we have been begotten of God by the new birth. He has put the, the seed of spiritual life within each one of us and is changing us in a very real way by being born again. Like Even the phrase being born again. Remember Nicodemus in John 3 and Jesus saying, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus was like, what? Like, he, he, he knew, you know, sometimes we, we preachers make mistakes and we say, well, he was so confused that he literally thought Jesus meant, you know, to be physically born again. And no, he, like his statements were saying it's a, it sounded ridiculous to him. He's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, what could you possibly mean by that? He knew he wasn't talking about the literal aspect of that, but he didn't know what he was talking about. And so Jesus kept pressing that matter home that he had to be born again um, that, that's, that's, uh, that's what James is talking about there it's what John is talking about here we are begotten of God by the new birth uh, and notice he says brought us forth or begat us by the word of truth God's spirit works through his word uh, to call us to new life in Christ this is what John was talking about back in verse 29 of the previous chapter isn't it when he said if you know that he is righteous he that is God you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been what? Born of him or born again. That's the evidence of being born again. So the work of God that has begun in each of us who believe at our new birth and conversion is then carried on throughout this life in our sanctification where God renews us after his image and enables us more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Uh, verse 1, John says something that maybe you kind of scratched your head when I was reading it. Like, why does John bring this up? He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You wonder why John says that? Like, why does he say that here? Why is he talking about our adoption and being born again and all of a sudden the world doesn't know us? Like, what's, what is he getting at here? Um, we might think, I think this is the temptation, you and I might think that if we're children of God, then our whole life in this life should be, to quote Rocky Balboa, our whole life should be sunshine and rainbows. Like everything should just be happy, happy-go-lucky and nothing should ever happen bad in our lives. We should have a trouble-free life, prosperous life. But what, what happens? You come to know the Lord, you're born again in Christ, God begins to work in your life, and then sooner or later the world starts to hate you. That's what he means by when he says that they don't know God's children they, they reject, they don't recognize us for what we are, and so they, re they often reject us. They often persecute us. It's what they did to Christ. Christ said in the Gospels, you know, if, if, they, if they loved me, they'd love you, wouldn't they? But they hated me. Don't be surprised if the world hates you because they hated me first. What's the implication? 
You remember what the word Christian means in the book of Acts? When they were first called Christians at Antioch, I think it says, the word Christian means like little Christ. It, and it doesn't mean that we are Christ. You know, more, there's more than one. But it, what it means is there's some kind of family resemblance there. They recognize Christ in you. They don't know it. They, but they recognize the work of God in you. And because they hate God and they hate Christ, some of that hate gets rubbed off on you and me. That's why that happens. So, it's, you know, we say this sometimes, take it as a compliment when the world hates you because they hated Christ first. If the world thinks you're just great, there's probably something wrong. Really, if they don't see any resemblance. Now, you know, what, what's the say in the scriptures in the book of Acts? You know, the people that crucified Christ and murdered him on the cross and put him to death. If they knew, if they really comprehended who he was, they never would have, it says, never would have crucified the Lord of glory. But they didn't know him. They did not recognize him because he did not come with any outward show or pomp, right? There was nothing in how he looked that would make anybody desire him as, oh, that's, he surely must be the Christ. Nothing in how he looked or how he carried himself in many ways. And yet he, he was and is the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And so just as they didn't understand or recognize him, they don't know or recognize his people uh, in some ways, but in other ways they do, right? They, they, they may not realize that this is why they're doing it, but they recognize the family resemblance in God's people, and that's what leads to the conflict and the persecution at times throughout this life in this world. Uh, and so what are we to do as Christians? Now, is hearing just a little bit of what John says here in our passage, um, especially about the world not knowing us, are we to uh, shrink back or try to hide or obscure that family resemblance? That's the temptation, isn't it? Oh, well, maybe if I just try to blend in a little bit uh, with the world by compromising sin, just little things, right? Um, you know, what's the saying? It's the nail, that's, it's the, ha the nail that sticks out that gets the hammer. Nobody wants the hammer, so maybe I'll just try to blend in and, you know, hunker down a little bit and not stick out quite so much. Um, no, that's not what God would have us uh, to do. What does John tell us to do? Look again at verses 2 and 3. John says, Beloved, uh, we are God's children now, not later. You're not going to become God's child when Christ returns. You're his child now if you're a believer. Uh, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, that's Christ, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, that's in Christ, purifies himself even as he is pure. So what's John saying? John's saying, be more conformed to Christ, not less. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to obscure it. Don't try to, to blend in. Um, he says we are God's children now. It doesn't wait until heaven. Uh, we as believers are not what we're used to be, right? He says both these things here. Basically, you're not what you used to be. You're not yet what you're going to be, but you're not what you used to be. Um, you, are, you are believers. So again, take it as a backward compliment. When the world hates you, it means they see, you know, you as a believer, me as a believer, sometimes we have difficulty seeing the work of God in us. And that, that could be for all kinds of reasons. But, you know, it's one of those things, one of the reasons we need fellowship with other believers is that we all tend to see God working in each other better than we see God working in us. We all are harder on ourselves maybe than we maybe should be. Sometimes we're not as hard as we should be, but uh, but in a weird way, in, in kind of a backwards way, 
you could also get more assurance from the way the world treats you. Take it as kind of a backward, unintended compliment when the world hates you. It's like, I may not see the work of God in me, but sometimes they, they must. Now, don't take it as a compliment if you're just a jerk and the world doesn't like you. But, but if it's because of conformity to Christ, uh, they might see it in a weird way better than you do in some ways. And so take, take heart from that as well. But we aren't what we used to be, but God isn't finished with us yet while we remain in this life before God calls us home or Christ returns. So John says, what we will be has not yet appeared. Verse 2. When will that happen? When Christ returns. When will our status as the children of God be made fully manifest for everyone, including ourselves, to see? Only when Christ returns in glory. John says, we know that when he appears, Christ, when he appears, we shall be like him. I mean, he means fully like him, conform to his image. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Believers will share in Christ's glory when Christ returns in glory. It, that's, again, it's mind-boggling. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8 about suffering first and glory to follow. We, we will share in the glory of Christ. He says even the creation itself groans waiting for the revelation, the, the unveiling of the sons of God in Christ when he, when he returns. And so what are we to do? Are we to sit around and wait? We shouldn't be content to wait. We should be so looking forward to sharing in the glory of Christ and being conformed to his image that we seek to be as conformed to his likeness and image in holiness of life now. That, that's, that's what Paul's talking about. I think it's in Philippians 3. It's a strange, uh, it's in Philippians, this strange uh, thing that Paul says, or maybe when you read it, you're like, what is he saying? When he says he strains forward or presses forward uh, to, the call, to, the, to the calling of God, that he might even attain the resurrection of the dead. Like, what? What do you mean? Like, what are you, what are you saying, Paul? You're going you're gonna to be resurrected now? You know, you're going you're gonna to be executed in Rome and then rise from the dead and be in glory now? No, Paul's not saying that's actually going to happen now, right? Paul wasn't expecting the minute he was executed under Nero to suddenly rise up and surprise, I'm back, you know, and be all in glory. No, nothing like that. What he's saying is his goal in life was to be as, as, as conformed to Christ's image in this life as he knew he one day will be when Christ returns. At the resurrection, when, he, when, when all God's people will be conformed to Christ's image in every way and be conformed to his glory, uh, even, even that as well. And so we shouldn't be content to wait. Paul wasn't content to wait. John doesn't want us to be content to wait, that the main outworking of this, besides our encouragement, comfort, and hope, uh, according to John here in the scripture, is that we might be more and more motivated to be conformed to Christ's image in this life. To, to have that family resemblance be deepened further and further. You know, when you're a little kid, maybe when you're a big kid, it's not the same. Oh, you remind me of your dad. No, don't say that. You know, when you're a little kid, you want to be like your mom or your dad. You know, when, when somebody compares you to your mom or your dad, usually you're like, that's great. You know, uh, you, want, you want to look like your parents, maybe. You want to do what they do. Um, that should be how we act now as children of God. I want to be more and more like Christ now and not content to wait. In fact, what does John say in verse 3? Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's sometimes that verse can be translated in kind of a muddled way. Uh, I think one of the translations is everyone who has this hope in him 
And people sometimes take that to mean who has that this hope within himself. No, it's, it's the preposition, sorry for this grammar, Greek, whatever. It, it's, it just doesn't sound right when you translate it into English, so they use the word in. If you want to translate this in a wooden literal way, it's everyone who has this hope upon him purifies himself even as he is pure. Who is the him? Christ. Everyone who has this hope upon Christ purifies himself even as he is pure. If we have truly set our hope upon Jesus Christ, one of the outworkings of that will be that we will purify ourselves from the sin that remains more and more by the work of his spirit within us. And if we don't, what's the correlation there? If, if we don't, are we really hoping in Christ at all? If that's nowhere on the radar screen, wanting to be more like Christ, are we really hoping in him? Do we really understand the gospel much at all? And so in, how is that? In verse 2, John says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And why is that? Because we shall see him as he is. There's something about beholding Christ in all his glory that will have a transformative effect on us by the grace of God. How that happens, I can't tell you. I don't think the Bible gives us that uh, decodering enough to give us that information. Uh, but something about beholding Christ is transformative for God's people. And that brings to mind the words in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul says this. Paul, remember, remember Moses came down from the mountain after meeting with God and his face was glowing? Like, you know, he, he, the Shekinah glory of God, that's the point. The glow, the glow of God, so to speak, was reflected in Moses' face where he had to put a veil over his face because he was scaring the Israelites. How, I mean, how shiny must his face have been? You know, they were like, Paul, hey, hey, Moses, can you go to the powder room for a second? You know, can you dim this down? Um, you know, it was like, what in the world kind of thing? Um, so he put a veil over his face, and Paul says here, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, present tense, right, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as believers, what, what's, what should be happening now? We are beholding the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. You know, we, we, are, we, are, we are seeing Christ in the scriptures, and we are what? Being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another until you are completely conformed to Christ's image when he returns in glory. So we behold the glory of the Lord in his word, and God uses that to transform you bit by bit in this life until one day we behold his glory when he returns. And so what should we do? Uh, we should continue to behold Christ's glory in God's word, and because of that we should seek to purify ourselves even as he, Christ, is pure, knowing, being assured of the fact that we are God's beloved children in Jesus Christ. And one day our experience of that will actually be made full and complete to the glory of God and to our great comfort and joy. Amen.